Perhaps it was mere coincidence, but on the same day I read Christianity Today's 33 Under 33 article, I spoke with David Wells, still sharp at age 75. He's a friend of ours and the author of many excellent books over the years, books like God in the Wasteland and No Place for Truth. He serves as Distinguished Senior Research Professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and his newest book is titled God in the Whirlwind, How the Holy Love of God Reorients Our World, published by Crossway. I was surprised to see how much of the book was devoted to the topic of internet use, and so I asked Dr. Wells, what would you tell young Christians today who use the internet almost without any sense of self-imposed limits? From his home in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, this is what he said. It's only since the mid 1990s that the web has has been widely used in our society with all that goes with that so we're talking here about two decades we basically only had it two decades so we're still trying to we uh, all of us are trying to figure out what's of use in it what damages us We're trying to figure out a way through this because we can't escape it. And probably none of us wants to escape it. But even if we did, we cannot escape it. We cannot become monks. So we've got to find a way to live with it. And that's what we are struggling to do. And I'll tell you my greatest concern here. There is no doubt that it is highly distracting because we get computer pings and beeps and text message comes in and, uh, and so on. I mean, we all understand this, as you said. But the much larger question, and, and it's harder to understand, is what is this doing to us? Uh, what's it doing to our minds when we are living with this constant distraction. We are, we are, in fact, living with a parallel universe. It's virtual, and it's, it's a universe that can take all of the time that we have. So how do we, how do we share our time between the virtual universe and this universe? And what happens to us when we are in constant motion? When in fact we we almost are addicted to constant visual stimulation, what happens to us? Yes, and that's the big question. What is new technology like the iPhone and smartphones in general doing to us? What older Christians like David Wells cannot offer us by way of savvy advice on the latest apps? They make up for with wise questions for us to seriously consider about our technologies, and David Wells here offers a very big question, an insightful question we would be wise to heed. What is all of our digital communications technology that we're blessed with? What's it doing to us? There's much to learn here from Wells on technology, and we'll pick up this conversation with him in a later episode down the road. But for now, to help us understand what the internet and iPhone are doing to us, I want to turn to author and philosopher Douglas Grotheis. His name is spelled G-R-O-O-T-H-I-U-S. Dr. Grotheis serves as professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, and he joins us from Denver. Dr. Grotheis, I appreciate your time talking with us. And, and for this discussion, I want to focus in on the smartphone and digital communications technology, things like Twitter, Facebook, Skype, text messaging, etc., email. 
Uh, one thing that strikes me uh, is that you seem to use Facebook really well. Uh, you share your own personal struggles and your pains there. You're not afraid to tell your Facebook friends that you need prayer uh, for the personal aches of your own life. So let's start here. What are some of the spiritual benefits of personal digital communication technology that we enjoy as Christians today? Some of the benefits are that you can establish significant interactions with people. You can't have a personal relationship with everyone, but I found, particularly through Facebook, that people are very caring and very concerned. In fact, I can think of three or four people who have become real friends, not just Facebook friends, through that kind of interaction. But in those cases, I've always uh, been able to associate with those folks outside of Facebook. So they may have sent a card, or I may have talked to them over the phone, or I may have done a Skype conversation with them. So the more you can multiply these points of contact, I think the deeper you can go. But none of those things None of those things substitute for a face-to-face -face interaction. Every technology is a trade-off. There's no purely good technology per se, at least with communication technologies. Because as McLuhan said a long time ago, you gain certain things and you lose certain things. So, for example, with Facebook, you gain instant interaction to a large number of people but you lose, obviously, the face-to-face, person-to-person interaction. And every technology is like that. So a wise person will not shun technology in principle, but ask, how does this benefit me and others? And what do I lose? And what do other people lose by using this particular technology? We don't want the technologies to use us. We want to use them. Do you see younger Christians today asking any of these key questions? Not so much not unless I make them. And what I do in my classes is, for one thing, I don't allow any electronic devices. So my students cannot use laptops or smartphones to look things up. And I clearly articulate that in terms of, I want us to interact. I view the classroom as a sanctuary for knowledge. And I want to be different than the rest of the world. I want to be more like a thermostat than a thermometer. So to learn, particularly to dive into philosophy, you need to listen, you need to speak, you need to ask questions. And I want there to be one conversation going on in the room. Now, in some cases, I'll be groping for a name or a date, and it would be helpful for a student to look that up on the laptop or on the smartphone, but I'd rather not have that particular fact than have the temptation to distraction. I think we're a very distracted culture. We're trying to multitask things that should not be multitask. They should be unitask. Um, and that's what I tell my students. You can't multitask philosophy. Yes, and how much more trying to multitask the study of God. Thank you for that. You, you saw the challenges and the possibilities of the Internet very early on, and you wrote a book in 1997 called The Soul in Cyberspace, and you followed that up with an article in 1998 titled Christian Scholarship and the Philosophical Analysis of Cyberspace Technologies. I admit I have not read your book, but I have read the article multiple times. It's really, really brilliant. Um, there you bring up Psalm 115. I want to talk about this for a little bit. 
Psalm 115 is a psalm about man-made idols, idols that cannot speak or hear or smell or feel or walk. And you focus in there in verse 8, which says, those who make them, the idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them, end quote. Then you go on to quote Marshall McLuhan, who writes this, quote, the psalmist insists that the beholding of idols or the use of technology conforms men to them, end quote. So that's key. Technology conforms us. And then you write this, quote, in this passage, McLuhan moves from idolatry to technology quite effortlessly without any elaboration, but he does not reject all technology as idolatry. Rather, his point is that technological innovations invariably end up acting back on their creators, often in unforeseen and even unforeseeable ways. McLuhan's insight, forged from biblical materials, is that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. That's a profound biblical point. I think it's also made in in Romans 1, other places in Scripture, uh, I think this point has been proved beyond a shadow of a doubt by Greg Beale in his landmark book, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. Okay, so let's get practical here. What does this mean for those of us who behold an iPhone screen all day long, every day? How does the iPhone act back on us? Right. Well, technologies have certain built-in biases, so to speak. They favor some things and they tend to exclude other things. So, for example, if you are on your smartphone hour after hour every day, your attention will be directed towards it because there's so much going on within it. You have apps. You obviously have phone possibilities. You can go on the Internet. You can take photographs. So instead of having your attention focused on the one you are with, let's say your husband or wife or child or friend or even your pet. I sometimes feel sorry for dogs when I see their owners on smartphones instead of paying attention to them on the walk. I'm a dog person. So something like a smartphone absorbs our interest because it is so alluring. It can do so many things. And in a sense, it's asking us to do so many things with it. And humans are limited. We need to recognize that. We need to embrace our finitude, let alone confess our sins. We can only think through so many things at once. We can only feel properly a limited number of things. And these technologies want to stretch us out over the entire globe with Twitter feeds, Facebook messages, telephone calls, photos shared on Pinterest and so on. And if we really own up to our finitude and the fact that a life well lived is a life lived carefully, as Paul says in Ephesians, we simply have to say no to some of these things and practice the presence of people, so to speak. I see so many people out at restaurants or at pubs or something like that and They're sitting together, but they're all looking at their smartphones. Where you see families, that's what really troubles me. Young couple, a child or two, and they're all on some kind of device, even the two-year-old. I went to a bookstore recently and was having some coffee, and I saw the mother on a cell phone, 
and the child on some kind of talking, singing little tablet, and he must have been all of two and a half years old. Commonplace and troubling, especially when it's not real clear uh, what it's doing to us in the long run. So how do you challenge your uh, philosophy students to understand and face the reality that they are finite beings? Uh, They live and operate within human limitations. Well, one exercise that I have my students do is to withdraw from a technology that you use on a regular basis. Now, 10 or 15 years ago, it was pretty simple. Most students would turn off the television for a week or 10 days, and they would notice profound differences in their ability to concentrate, their awareness of significant other people. It would really change them, and they would be challenged to listen to God, to listen to other people. They would be faced with a lot of extra time in which they could study, pray, and so on. Now, in some ways, smartphones and other things like that are challenging television. I was just reading recently that younger people, people under 30, are not watching as much television, but that's being compensated by activity on the Internet. And what's happened is something that was predicted about 20 years ago by George Gilder, and that is that computers and the Internet are absorbing television. It's not that television is going away, it's being transferred to the Internet, and it's being personalized. So the idea is to pull back and then observe your own self, your soul, your body. You observe other people, and this opens up your awareness. Because when you begin to become shallow in your interactions with other people, you can become habituated to that because you always have the smartphone, you always have the laptop or something like that. But when you strategically eliminate that kind of abstention, sometimes I call it a media fast, it opens up your senses to what this does to you. And certainly people will go back to using these technologies, but I think you use them in a much more conscious and aware way. And I also hope that people will find an appreciation for silence. Our culture is a very noisy, very distracted culture. But there there are many passages in Scripture that encourage us to be silent, uh, to limit our words. And we don't do that. In our culture, we're a very loquacious, very noisy, distracted culture. And it's difficult to understand reality aright and to serve God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind when we're diverted and distracted and multitasking everything. What responses do you get from your students after that week away from technology? Well, a very large percentage of the students are thankful for the exercise. Most of them will say that in the first several days, it's difficult. They're antsy. They're fidgeting because you're breaking up a habit pattern. And anytime you do that, whether it's going on a reducing diet or trying to exercise more, it's difficult at first because you're establishing a new pattern of life. But then the students say that they begin to become more aware of themselves, their environment, and aware of God. So the students have to then replace time spent on the technology with doing something else. And those things open up and become more interesting to the students. And then when the students get 
back into the media world afterwards, uh, they usually view it with more suspicion. They're more critical. When students go off of television for seven and ten days and then they watch television, they're often disturbed by it because everything moves so quickly. It makes so many demands on your senses. So what I'm trying to get across to the students is not merely that the content, the worldview communicated, let's say, by television is ungodly most of the time, but the very form of television, the rapid images, the changing scenes, the privileging of the image over the word, those things affect how you view the world. Those things tend to set your habit patterns. I mean, for example, let's say you're watching some kind of news program or you're watching a short video on YouTube about some event or something that happened in history. You get on television news maybe two or three minutes on a story. You get almost no historical background, no cultural analysis, and is dominated by images and what Marshall McLuhan called talking hairdos, that is, the newscasters who are not experts on anything. So you realize that if you want to understand, let's say, something that's going on in the Middle East, you need to read some history. You need to go deeper into human nature and so on. But we have this illusion that if I've seen a two-minute clip on the Internet that I understand a particular issue. You may not at all, but you may think that because you're well-informed that you're knowledgeable, but simply having a lot of information in your mind is not the same as understanding or knowing things, being able to justify your beliefs. Yeah, that's right. As you point out in your article, there's an important place in the church for communications technology, say, for example, the epistle, uh, which was written and mailed off to the churches. But Christianity remains a face-to-face, incarnational, embodied reality. Um, Scripture emphasizes face-to-face relationships, even when letters can be used to communicate. I love that the Apostle John closes 2 John with this statement, quote, Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. That was the technology for him. That was modern technology. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. So there's a, there's a shared joy here that demands embodiment. Uh, in the article, you write this about the passage. For John, the fullness of joy was reserved for incarnational encounters, despite the fact that he was an instrument of the Holy Spirit in the writing of Scripture. So, so you have an apostle penning eternal truth, and yet he treasures the ephemeral personal encounter with his readers, a meeting that will somehow complete their shared joy together. That's an amazing statement. So, uh, if you can, can you fill this out more for us? Fill this out in, in what is the significance of embodiment on the Christian life and fellowship? Well, that verse in Second John, and there's a very similar verse in Third John, stood out to me with great force when I was writing my book, The Soul in Cyberspace. And I had read over those verses dozens and dozens of times. But then as I was thinking the nature on the nature of technology, which is usually disembodied, it struck me how significant being with is or practicing the presence of people, so to speak. And I realized that even though these writers were inspired, you have an apostle writing second and third John and also the Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 1, that there was a yearning for fellowship. So that's really based on the Christian doctrine of creation. God created all things, and they were good, created human beings, they were very good. 
So God wanted to bring about the space-time material world with human beings made in his image and likeness, and he pronounced those things to be good. He blessed that world. And then we go to the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. So it's not in the beginning was the video. In the beginning was the word, and he incarnated among us. So think of some of the practices in the church, uh, the right hand of fellowship, the laying on of hands, baptism, communion. All these things are physical involvements inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, I was on a radio program on the BBC several years ago, and one of the people on with me had founded something called St. Pixels. And St. Pixels is a virtual church in which you participate as an avatar. So you take on a virtual character in this virtual church. And I, of course, questioned these things, uh, saying some of the things I just said to you. And the person shot back, but people are so authentic in this world, this cyber world. And I said, how could you possibly know that? They're taking on pixelated characters. You can't look them in the eye. You can't shake their hand. You can't read their body language and so on. So Christianity differs from every other religion except Judaism in claiming that the universe is created good, and God puts his blessing on it, and God wants fellowship with human beings using the medium of matter. So we have the doctrine of creation, we have the doctrine of incarnation, you think of something like Jesus turning water into wine, and the best wine in John chapter 2, that's embodied, that's table fellowship, that's enjoying the, the fruit of the vine, and Jesus blessing that. So we lose so much when we substitute the virtual image for the embodied reality. Now, we gain something. For example, let's say there's a country, a Muslim country, where the gospel is prohibited, and it's very difficult to get human beings into that situation and plant a church. Well, you reach out to those people through radio and television and the Internet, and people can hear the authentic gospel or read about it and turn to Christ. Certainly, that's tremendous. But if you have the opportunity to be with people, to extend the right hand of fellowship and to pray with people, lay hands on people and so on, we should certainly do that. But the church, the body of Christ, is to meet. We are to be with each other and we are to worship together and confess our sins and have communion and so on, and embrace people and show our love for people, weep with those who weep and laugh with those who laugh. So, for example, I have a friend, and I made this friend through Facebook, who is in South Africa, and I've never been able to meet this person, but we really want to meet each other because we like each other, but we can't. So we exchange prayer requests and we interact and we send uh, something a little more embodied, like a postcard. <laughs> we have, you know, a good Christian friendship going. But it's still second rate, and we know that. But uh, for my friends that I don't know face to face who are Christians, we don't say, well, the 
kind of interaction we have online substitutes for being involved with the local church. No, it doesn't. Yeah, that's right. So when you think of meeting your friend from South Africa and you think of this fullness of joy in Second John 12, what is fullness of joy? Can we press into this reality even more in this meeting of embodied creatures? What, what is, what's going on here? Well, I think it has to do with the engaging of personalities. So our personality will come through to some extent, an email message, a tweet, but we are holistic beings. We have feelings, we have thoughts, we have our imagination, and we have our bodies. We look different. We express ourselves differently. For example, just tone of voice. How many times have we miscommunicated with someone online because there's no tone of voice and we were joking and someone took it seriously and got offended or we say something serious and people think we were joking. So I think the fullness of joy comes with one personality interacting with other personalities in terms of voice, touch, appearance, uh, timing. Sometimes it's time just to be quiet with people or to cry with people or to laugh with people. And then we have the whole dynamic of collective worship, which is very significant biblically because uh, God inhabits the praises of his people. So when people come and worship in spirit and truth, there's the presence and the dynamic of the Holy Spirit that can't really be repeated through a Skype call or even a group Skype call. Uh, that would be second best, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Here's a question that has been on my mind a lot, uh, especially since I work in online communications and work on the Internet every day. Uh, why are we, uh, even Christians, so prone to boldly criticize people online, saying things to people online that we would never say to them face-to-face. -face. Um, wh why does digital communication seem to bring out criticism from us so easily? Well, the communication online is edited. It's filtered. So I could be very hypocritical in an email message or a Facebook message or a Twitter message, but it's harder to be hypocritical face-to-face -face because Literally, you're looking at someone else's face and they're looking at you and you can understand body language and so on. And that speaks so much to who we are. Now, even a handwritten card, and I'm something of a card fanatic. I love to write handwritten cards to people and decorate them with art stamps and things like that. That's more personal. It's slower and it's much more embodied, let's say, than an email message or a tweet. Uh, but even there, obviously, I could be faking it or I could not be revealing who I am. I try to have integrity in that in that medium, obviously. But you know that expression, warts and all, when you're with someone, it's harder to hide your weaknesses. And I think your strengths come out more clearly as well, simply because it's full-bodied. It's voiced. It's posture. It's how you relate to others in a tactile sense. Uh, the power of touch is tremendous in human life, for good or for ill. And nothing really substitutes for the human touch. I remember several years ago, the ambulance came to our neighbor's house, and I went over there to see what was going on, and they were taking a woman to ER, and I saw her and I looked at her in the eye and I just touched her on the shoulder and I said, it will be all right, we'll pray for you. And I found out later from my wife that 
this dear woman said that that touch and those words helped get her through several very difficult days in the hospital. And that was far beyond anything I expected. So the power of human touch and love is really pretty phenomenal. And we're losing that, I think, in our culture. We're, we're too busy. We're talking into the smartphone. We're sending the emails, the tweets, the Pinterest notes, and all the rest of it. Now, obviously, it's not an either-or. Uh, you can be involved in both, but what worries me, two things worry me. One is that we tilt far too much towards the mediated interaction. And secondly, that the way we interact online then becomes the norm for how we interact offline. So in Facebook and Twitter and so on, things are pretty short, clipped, and very rapid. And that's not a way to have a good conversation with someone. Uh, Moreover, a good conversation involves listening and timing. And that's pretty much taken away with Internet communications because you're not there with the person. So someone can send you a message and you can ignore it. Or someone can send you a message and you get to it two hours later. But if you're in real time, in a real place with real bodies and a real voice, that's a very different dynamic. And you shouldn't treat another person the way you would uh, interact with Twitter. You're in a different environment. And I think we need to understand what environments do to our communication. We need to have integrity when we're online. We should do it prayerfully. We need to resist impulses, and I don't always successfully do this. I've deleted not a few Facebook posts and so on. But remember that we're doing this before the face of God, and we're interacting with eternal beings. So we are having an effect on people's destinies, even through a a Twitter message. I think if we take that kind of approach, it gives us a sense of gravitas, and we're less likely to become flippant in that situation. I think glibness and being flippant are terrible vices in our age because so many times in Scripture we're told to be careful with our words. Proverbs says this over and over again. We're told to be careful how how we speak and let our words be few and so on. And these technologies allow us to just talk endlessly. It may not be the physical voice, but it's some kind of message. And I think we need to edit ourselves a little bit more and realize that mediated communication has tremendous benefits, but there are detriments as well. So the best thing is to say, what does this technology do well? What does it not do well? And then what kind of a person am I? If I'm a real, really erratic, impulsive person, maybe I shouldn't use some of these technologies at all. That was Dr. Douglas Grotheis. He is the professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary and the author of the 1997 book, The Soul in Cyberspace. So here's the takeaway that I bring away from this discussion. I think David Wells is right. Technology like the internet is young. The iPhone is even younger. So what is all of this digital communications technology doing to us? We don't really know. And that's the scary thing. But there are some questions we can ask ourselves, specifically six questions to gauge how my iPhone is changing me. Here they are. Question number one, 
Am I becoming like what I behold in my iPhone? Are my face-to-face relationships conforming to modes of communication that are shaped by my online habits? Question number two. Am I overlooking my finiteness? I am finite. I'm a man severely limited in what I can know and what I can read and what I can engage and what I can care about. So do I want to know everything? And do I fear being left behind on what's trending online right now? Question number three. Am I multitasking priorities that should be unitasked? Specifically, is my time with God and the word and prayer being distracted by or even replaced by digital interruptions? Question number four, am I deleting my embodiment? Do I truly value the personal face-to-face relationships in my life over the disembodied relationships I maintain online? I think it's worth asking. Are my face-to-face relationships with my neighbor, my wife, and my kids, are they suffering as a result? Question number five is related Am I losing interest in the gathered church on Sunday? Baptisms, the Lord's Supper, corporate worship, the laying on of hands, do I truly value the embodied reality that is my local church? Or do I fiddle through it on my phone looking for something more entertaining? And question number six, am I growing careless with my words? It's easy for my words to be published online, so what self-imposed limitations do I have to filter what I say? And do I have any accountability to anyone in my life for what I say online? These are six important questions to think about. Six ways our iPhones could be shaping and changing our lives in a negative way. I want to thank Dr. Grotheis for his time and thank you for listening to this episode, episode number 31 of the Authors on the Line podcast. As always, this podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. It comes to you free of charge because here at Desiring God, our ministry is supported by generous financial donors like you. So thank you. To find a full archive of our previous episodes, search for Authors on the Line in the iTunes Store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. And if you have a suggestion for me about an author you'd like to hear on this podcast, please connect with me online through Twitter at T-O-N-Y-R-E-I-N-K-E. That's my Twitter handle. And see, there's some great blessings to having a Twitter account. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. We will talk again very soon.